0: Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, your co-host for this program, and I'm joined by my co-host, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor.
1: Hi there, Marcus. Good to see you again this week.
0: It's good to have you join me on what I was told by Bill Bateson, our producer. The uh, This is the 40th
1: episode. That... And it almost feels like we've been on a Lenten journey, <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> well... I'm when you think about what a Lenten journey is and the sufferings and the sacrifices that we're supposed to take. I'm really praying that our 40 episodes of Against Heresies was not necessarily a Lenten journey for everybody. Uh, but yet, on but the other I hand,
1: would say, as a priest, though, I would say it makes for one heck of a penance. Okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, uh, I know we've said, I wrote this in the opening article for this series of presentations on the Coming Home Network website. If you go to the community and you check on uh, resources um, and go to the Deep in History section of the community, we have a welcome letter there. And in that, I mentioned that one of the reasons we did this, Monsignor, this program was, besides the fact that this is such an important book and author but it's also because we recognize that for so many of us we we know some quotes from Irenaeus, you know some proof texts if you will and as you've mentioned monsignor a number of times that i think with the catechism quotes Irenaeus about 20 times or so yeah but 25. so so few 25 yeah 25 okay well so yeah. few people take the time to actually read this long book Uh, And we wanted to do that. And partially the reason is because the beginning of it is so much of a drudge, if you will, to get through the Gnostics and their beliefs and who are they and and all that, that a lot of people give up. But we wanted to drudge through. so So here we are, episode 40, in which we're now finally beginning book five. And we're on page 448. There's about 90 pages to go with the book. I think 38 chapters to go. Uh, and a lot of meat in those pages. Right, Monsignor? I mean, there's a lot. Yeah.
1: yeah, Because he's he's hitting a stride. His style is better now. And he, he is more economical in the way he expresses himself in this book. So we'll be going through some very rich stuff here.
0: One... Uh, one of the d- descriptions, analogies, if you will, that I'm using to describe why we are looking at this book um, 100, or 1850 years later, uh, I, I use the ex- analogy of where I live in central Ohio, the two closest towns to me are Dresden and Fraziesburg. And the only reason these little towns exist, at least Fraziesburg, is because it was a a lock on the canal between Lake Erie and the Ohio River. And during the early 19th century, when they dug by hand, I mean, think about it. They didn't have backhoes, but a whole bunch of guys dug the canals from Lake Erie all the way across Ohio. And... I'm, where I live, there's a number of locks along the way that raised the boats up. It was a whole culture. People invested their lives in their money in the state resources and taxes to build these canals. And they thought this was a new way of life. and mm-hmm. and for twenty years, this was it until something else came along called the railroad, it changed everything. It changed everything. Of course, then the automobile came along. It changed everything again. But if you could imagine, people would ride in these little canal boats down the canals from Cleveland all the way down to Ohio River. And they would live in those little canal boats for, I don't know, weeks to make the trip. I don't know how long it took. But if you could imagine that somebody, because how diff you know, people living together in these little canal boats on this little drawn by mules or whatever, somebody might have written a book on the proper etiquette on how to survive three weeks on a canal boat. Uh, And they might have published that book and they might have challenged different views on how to live on a canal boat, arguments on living on a canal boat for three weeks together with a bunch of random folk. They might have put that book together. But, when the, but, but now here we are today, there are no canals anymore. There are no canal boats. There's a little town near me called Roscoe Village that has one of those canal boats that you can sit and stand on. So we might say, well, that book isn't worth anything because they don't have canal boats anymore. Who cares about the different opinions on living on a canal boat 180 years ago? Who cares? But still, we can study that book to, see, to hear about the underlying ethics of a culture 180 years ago and how those ideas that author built his arguments upon and see the ethics uh, and the, uh, the etiquette of 180 years ago and how it is a foundation for what we believe today about ethics and etiquette. So there is value in reading that book. We may not spend time on the arguments of the different people about how to live on a canal boat, but the ethics and the etiquette. To me, that's what's going on in this book with Irenaeus. And that's why people put it aside. Who cares about what Valentinus or Marcion or other people? You know, they don't, they're not around anymore. So who cares about Irenaeus' or arguments against them? But when we read his arguments or read that, we find his underlying theology, his underlying, we find the apostolic doctrine that he built his arguments on. So to me, that's one of the values of this book, Monsignor.
1: Um, Well, and I I think what I'd say, um, Marcus, is that uh, especially for people that have to deal with certain religious studies faculties around our universities, (laughs) This is for real. This stuff, because they have they have intentionally declared that um, their goal is to is to reconstruct and restore Gnosticism. Um, you know, if if people want to have a hair raising read, um, I think it was last year the, a book called Veritas came out, mm. and it was about. Um, Problem that Harvard Divinity School professor had uh, getting taken in with some fake texts, but um, it was you know the sub the sub story was her deliberate um, efforts to basically uh, reconstruct and bring back Gnosticism, and to praise it and see it as you know the patriarchal church crushing it out um, in the time that we're dealing with. So. I find it actually having a good. pretty direct relevance. Very good. I agree with that. And So on the one hand, if
0: you don't realize that this stuff is popping up its ugly head today, you might think, like the canals, it doesn't yeah. apply to us anymore. But the truth is, if we don't realize that Arianism still exists, and that its ugly head has shown its head in some supposed Christian sects. We may not be drawn to study why Arianism arose in the first place. And Arianism arose in the first place because these guys were taking the Bible seriously. And that's where Arianism rose. They lifted their interpretation of Scripture over the received apostolic deposit that Irenaeus was committed to defending.
1: You know, and think about how Valentinian Gnosticism, um, its views about the body, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, I think. Yep. Um, You could easily see transgenderism finding a home in Valentinianism. Wow. Easily.
0: Yeah, can the flesh can the flesh receive eternal life? Can the flesh, and if you see the flesh as evil or lower than the spiritual side, then the question is, well, does my flesh, is it capable of, of being resurrected? That's what we're going to deal with in, in, in that question. Yeah. And in, in, uh, today... In fact, we're entitling this episode The Importance of the Incarnation. Our goal today is a modest goal, I think. We're only going to cover the preface and chapter 1 of book 5. We're starting on page 448. Our, uh, we're only going through the top of page 452. The, the subject of the Incarnation Continues beyond this, and we'll get to that. But um, I thought enough for us to just to cover this, Monsignor. I thought there's a lot in here, and I want us to have, yeah. have the time to 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 do that. And we're going to follow the pattern that we did last week. Everyone is uh, Monsignor and I. We've put together, you know, an overview summary. I'll go through that, and Monsignor. I want you to interrupt me. You know, we go through yeah. that. But then once once we get through that, we'll at least have covered what we're going to cover today. And then we'll go back and dig deeper into some of these subjects. But still, Monsignor, there's some of these subjects I I, I don't want us to wait. I'm going to get us right into right away. But we're going to okay. We're going to jump into this. So um, so basically, the preface is Irenaeus giving an introduction to book five, kind of an overview. And then in chapter one, he jumps right into it again, but still a bit of a summary, a little bit. And he, he there's some great quotes in here. There's some great quotes, great quotes. Um, he begins in the preface by saying, just reminding his readers that I have exposed all the heretics and have declared their doctrines. So um, he's just summarizing what he's done so far in his four long books. And then he gives a great quote, and it's a summary of how the church preserves and guards the truth, the apostolic doctrine. And he This is such an underlying foundation to Irenaeus' thought that he, he repeats this in different ways all through the book, all through the entire collection of books. And this is in the middle of that first paragraph in which he says, I have exhibited the truth and have declared the preaching of the church, proclaimed first by the prophets... As we have shown, then completed by Christ and handed on by the apostles, from whom the church, receiving it and alone guarding it well throughout the whole world, hath delivered it unto her children. I have solved all the questions with the heretics press us with. I have explained the apostles' doctrine. And have cleared up many things which the Lord, by way of parable, both said
1: and did. Marcus, yeah. What I love about that quote is, um, is it's an encouragement to the, the faithful in the church that if you're in the Catholic Church, I'm speaking in the sense that Irenaeus is using it here. Um, you can have confidence that um, because of the faithfulness of the successors of the apostles, um, what they have handed on to you in the life of the church today, um, is 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 what was intended by God from the very beginning. So it's a it's a marvelous statement about the unity of of revelation, divine revelation.
0: Think about the end of Luke when Jesus is walking with two disciples along the road to Emmaus who do not understand what has happened,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how does Christ, the resurrected Christ, help them understand? He goes to the prophets.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: He goes to the prophets along the, and says how they are fulfilled in him. and, Catholics and Orthodox are very strong in a Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. Right, Monsignor? I mean, how you interpret the Psalms, how you interpret everything, it's Christ-centered. It's about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. And so that's what he's saying here. The truth, the, the preaching of the church is this, the prophets completed in Christ, and then he handed it on to the apostles, and they handed it on, as Irenaeus says in the next paragraph, a little couple pages later, the elders who are the pupils of the apostles. Mm -hmm. So the bishops are the pupils. So there's a distinction between the apostles and their successors. You know, there's a, a, a distinction there, and it's an important distinction, and it's it's, it's worth discovering, be, it's worth reflecting on, because when Christ promises the Holy Spirit, is it different to the apostles or his successors? Is it the same? And that's a, it's a, it's a debatable issue. But we have this group, the prophets fulfilled in Christ, passed on to the apostles, passed on to their successors, the elders who are their pupils, and then passed on
1: to us. And, and dear friend, nothing that the church may subsequently say, if it is contrary to scripture, is is valid. I think I think we draw that conclusion too, honestly. Because Marcus, Marcus but I just, I was so impressed. I just went through this, because I'm doing a Lenten class for a parish here in Minneapolis this uh, Lent, on scripture and and the fathers, and Irenaeus is, very clear with all the other fathers on the doctrine of the inerrancy of, of Scripture. Scripture. And so, scripture um, as
0: a part yeah. of that yeah. apostolic deposit. So the question became over time, what trumps what? I'm not making a political statement here, folks. You know, I'm using the word Trump in a, in a more a generic way. <laughs> But what trumps what? Scripture or or tradition? And the, the the teaching of the church from the very beginning, all the writers would have said that we can't add to or take away from that deposit, which became the conundrum for a guy by the name of John Henry Cardinal Newman.
1: Right. So what was the conundrum for Newman, Monsignor? Well, how do you explain the developments in the church? And he came up with an organic image of, um, you know, the acorn or the tree. And it, I mean, it starts with a seed, then the tree and the branches, and it's all one. It's all one reality or one truth. Uh,
0: well, to be honest, um, he was building on Vincent of Lorenz.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Vincent Lorenz had the acorn analogy, I think, and which is the sixth century?
1: Uh, Vincent was in the five, early, so, early yeah. five hundreds,
0: the early sixth century. So which in my
1: in my personal no, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry he's a, he was in the yeah, maybe that maybe that's right. the early five hundreds, that's what it was. Okay. early five early five hundreds, right. you know yeah. in
0: in my yeah. personal view, that's talking about a, a big period in the history of the church where why did Vincent bring this question up? It, it was a concern for many of his time. Are, are these decisions being made by Nicaea and Chalcedon and other places and in the battles, are they add-ons? You know, Or are they a, a, a newer way to express... The apostolic deposit, so it's not a changing; it's a, um, it's just a new expression. You know, the, right. the battle at Nicaea, if I get it right, was the word homoousios isn't in the Bible. It's not in Scripture,
1: so can we use it? And and the Father said yes, it's it's appropriate because it helps to bring out. Those, truth, the, the, those fundamental truths in Scripture about the person of Christ.
0: Right. And you're, and I agree with yeah. the way you said that, because yeah. usually the discussion in all these early fathers, they were not always asking, is this new development an expression of the tradition of the church, but is this new development an expression of Scripture? There really is, in the early church, an emphasis on Scripture, And tradition is how the early apostolic deposit understood scripture. (laughs) And so that's why can we use the word Trinity? It isn't in Scripture. So that was a battle on that. Newman talks about that in his essay on development. You know, or the phrase three in one isn't in scripture. But they would say, but it's the it's the apostolic deposit. It, it's there in the prophets, fulfilled in Christ, passed on to his apostles, passed on to their pupils, passed on to us. It's in there, but in in, in what in essence that's what most of us, or I would say, that's what a, the majority believe that John the twenty third was asking for when he called the consul the Second Vatican consul. He said specifically, we're not changing anything, but maybe we need to reexamine how we say it in this modern world. And so he didn't want to change mm-hmm. anything, add to or subtract from. But but do we say it differently given our modern world? And that's controversial in many people's minds. Because some say we changed it, and you know, and Uh, Some have a problem with gaudium et spes, because does gaudium et spes, the document from Vatican II, is it a continuity of what we just read here in Irenaeus, or is it a deflection or or going on? And those of us that defend Vatican II would say, no, it's a—and that's why John Paul, when he begins the, the catechism, the very first word John Paul says, that the purpose of the church is the guarding of the deposit. John Paul says, yeah, this is what we're supposed to do. And the church would say, if we got off track on something, then mea culpa.
1: Mea culpa. And for those of us that love Vatican II, it also is very clear that um, it doesn't go where Scripture doesn't where Scripture doesn't go, it doesn't go. So we want to be careful about some of these movements that we encounter nowadays, where the church is called to, for instance, same-sex marriages and things like that. You know, um, that's not a legitimate development.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're in a we're in a difficult time, folks. We, you know, we yeah. you know. The Congress is getting ready to vote on a on an amendment that might really change an awful lot of things for the church. And we need to pray that, uh, that God's victorious so we can defend. So that we can do what Irenaeus is saying we want to do, is preserve, guard, pass on, live, die for the truth. I have exhibited the truth and have declared the preaching of the church is what Irenaeus says, and that's what we need to be all about that's why mm-hmm. that's why to me, reading this is what's so valuable. this is uh, where it now he goes on to talk about the aims of the book, and he says the overall aim is the detection and overthrow of knowledge falsely called. <laughs> I love that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The Gnostics call themselves, you know, knowledgeable.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the word knowledge is the word Gnosis. That's where you get Gnostics from. So he's detection and overthrow of Gnosis falsely called. Falsely called. And he gives two things. How does he do this? Uh, In in book five, he's going to do it with two ways. So what we have ahead of us now is... He's making the arguments from the remainder of the Lord's teachings and the arguments from the apostles' epistles. So that's the foundation to this book five, the remainder of our Lord's teachings. And Paul, I think predominantly Paul, but also he says the apostles. And why is he going to do this? He says, "Why, why another book? And he had said that at the end of book four, but he goes through, and there's basically four things he says. On the bottom of page 448, number one, he says that he was called to do this by a person that he doesn't name, but he uses the word thou. So in other words, Irenaeus, when he's writing this, is very much like Luke writing the gospel in the book of Acts. He's writing it to a person. Mm Mm-hmm but knowing that it's for a wider distribution. And so he says that he was called to do this by a person. Um, He says uh, at the bottom, For so thou didst desire, and we obey thy direction, placed as we are in the office of dispensing the word, and labor every way according to our ability. And Monsignor, do you want to talk about this now, or come back to it? Sure, we can. We can say a word about this because yeah. I, I think there's a lot in here, and it's. I think it's fascinating yeah. because we didn't. I don't
1: think we talked about who this other person might be. We yes, we. I well, we met up with another that elder in the last book um, and considered some possibilities of who that might be. Um, it's we never we're told precisely who St. Irenaeus is writing this book to. Um, The context seems to be that he's writing it to bishops to help them um, because they've asked him for that help because of the problems they're having in their congregations with these Gnostic movements that are coming in and, and, and um, tearing places apart. So, I want, to make a, it out. I want to make a yeah, footnote for
0: everybody, yeah. those of you studying this, put a little footnote here and go back all the way to the beginning of the book, the very beginning on page two of this translation, which would basically be in the book one, in the preface, on the bottom of page two, section three of the preface, he makes this statement. And I don't think we talked about this when we started the book, Monsignor. No, I don't think so, No. He says, But thou wilt not require of us, who dwell among Celts and converse for the most part in a foreign language, skill in discourse which we have not learned, nor power of composition which we have not practiced, nor eloquence of phrase, nor persuasion of which we know nothing. Rather, in simplicity and truth and plainness, the things which are written to thee lovingly, thou wilt lovingly accept, and what is more, wilt cherish them within thyself. As being more competent than we are, receiving them from us as a kind of seeds and principles. So there, at the beginning of the book, he addresses this. month.
1: it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it you know we have to keep in mind that Irenaeus is a missionary bishop. Um, I mean, he he comes from um, Asia Minor. Um, you know, he grew up in with Polycarp in Smyrna, um, so. It's almost as if uh, this is a, a missionary um, organization that has come to, to France, to Southern Gaul, uh, to Lyon, to evangelize. And is this a letter home to the head of the mission board? <laughs> I don't know. You know, that's what that was. a Amongst was thinking the Celts. about
0: that. We think of the Celts up in Ireland,
1: but they, but they were basically running the whole of. Most of the European continent, or at least France, until the Romans now are are pushing in and pushing them out. But um, but I looked at uh, there's a footnote in um, the modern translation of Book One of Against Heresies, where the note says that Lyon um, is was the principal Celtic city in France mm. or in Gaul, and so. So yeah, when you he he's a missionary to the Gauls basically, that uh, yeah. to the Celts, and that's um, not his native language, right? No, no, and apparently it wasn't exactly Latin either, <laughs> right? So I mean that's behind yeah. this book, yeah.
0: and you know my personal, guesstimating opinion of this is that most of these things began as sermons. Because of the, the problem they were in. And so he took that opportunity for his people and for to start preaching it. And then they they were found to be so helpful that either one of the bishops, or maybe even the bishop of Rome, said, Irenaeus, you got to publish those. I want you to put these down. And so he responded to that in yeah. obedience because he saw that his his office was to dispense the word. You know, sometimes I think we forget when we think about priests and bishops in the church. And we what's the we think, what well, why do we have priests and bishops of the church? And the first thing that comes to people's mind, well, for the liturgy. Well, that's good. But that's not what's their primary. That's not their primary thing, in my view. Their reason is the dispensing of the word, the proclamation of the gospel, the salvation of souls. And that's what he says is. Oh, one other question I wanted to ask you about. I don't know if you picked up on this, everybody, when you're looking at the book, but he says it kind of strangely. He says, for so thou didst desire, and we obey that direction, placed as we are in the office of dispensing the word. He doesn't say I.
1: He says this we. Yeah, And and I think it's probably the custom, of course, the custom of bishops is to use the first person plural when they're speaking um, on a point that affects the whole church, Um, because it's the whole family speaking, basically. So we call it the papal we, um, but it's a whole lot more than just the popes that are using um, the first person plural in their communications. Even you see it today. Um, Bishops today, especially the more traditional ones, will use we.
0: Yeah, so I mean, here's an example yeah. of it going way back as early uh, as we have of bishops writing using the word "we." It's tradition. I, it's either him speaking in union with the other bishops, or him in humble submission to writing, yeah, with Christ or us. Okay, and
1: yeah, but it, the, what you do, what a bishop doesn't want to do is be speaking on his own. Um, then he loses his authority if, if it's just his personal opinion.
0: He's a dispenser of what he just talked about earlier, that truth that was passed on from the prophets, fulfilled in Christ, passed on. That gives him his foundation for authority, and it's that in which he's
1: carrying on his office.
0: All right. So why is he doing this? Number one, he's, he's fulfilling this request by whoever this person was. And then the other three things is to furnish help against heretics. Number three, to draw heretics back, to convert them to the church of God, he says. And three, to confirm the mind of the novices. He says specifically confirm the mind of the novices. That's on the top of page 449. To keep them unshaken in the faith. And Monsignor, it's neat. It's interesting that he points that out, because to me the assumption is that there's a problem here.
1: Yeah, and of course the novices would likely be referred to, or likely be referring to catechumens, those that are preparing for for holy baptism. Um, And there's a huge problem because obviously these gnostic traveling teachers have had had a real impact in these towns all around the empire. Yeah, because these Gnostics, teachers, many of them are priests themselves,
0: even bishops, right? I'm pretty sure some of them are even bishops, or at least at one time were. I I, think. I I might be wrong in it.
1: I think, I mean, there may have been, I'm trying to think. I can't. I'm sorry, Marcus. I can't come up with a su- okay, a suggestion of that. They they had broken away pretty early. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We, we
0: go back so, to the first letter of John, uh, yeah. and he talks about they were of us, but they went out from us.
1: Right. Well, yeah. Like Simon being the great example of that. Right. So yeah.
0: they and they called them the Antichrist. People that they yeah. were oh, they were ordained, they were part of us. They, you know, they experienced yeah. the Holy Spirit. In the book of Hebrews, chapter six, verse four, he talks about those that were experienced the blessing of the Spirit, but then committed apostasy. So we see that happening. All right. They were a part of us. And it confuses new Christians with as they're learning. Well, what about those people over there, you know?
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And that's happening today. We're seeing today new people coming into the church, and actually they're going through a difficult time with this whole COVID and closed churches, and they can't come in, and then the internet is bombarding them with different ideas about the Christian faith, very winsome people on the internet,
1: with every imaginable view. And you know, there has been a lot, well, for quite a few years now, the the bishops have been very concerned about how catechesis and RCIA has been taught on the local level. So there's a lot of effort to really rein that in and keep it faithful to the teachings of the Church as well. Um, yeah. And we and you you hear plenty of that from those that are inquirers um, that re- write out to you, right? Re- reach out to you in the Coming Home Network uh, uh, about just- that. Just
0: as we're talking, we just recently received a a letter from a former Pentecostal pastor who came into the church, and he's just appalled by what he's encountered at the local level. Just appalled. Yeah. And it's causing a lot of, it's causing him to be shaken in his faith. It's happening right now. Yeah. He's a new convert to the church, and it's exactly what's happening to him. And for his case, it's not because of of heretics outside the church. It's because of a local (laughs) priest and a local bishop that are just doing crazy things. Contrary to the apostolic deposit of the faith. And so he's saying, what the heck? I came into the, gave up my ministry. I came into the church and now i got a priest and a bishop that are teaching things contrary to the apostolic faith.
1: You know, we all get to play once in a while. We can play, if I were a bishop, that game. Um, (laughs) If I were a bishop, I would audit all of the RCIA classes in my diocese. I'd want to know what they were teaching, how they were answering questions.
0: Oh, boy. Maybe they ought to audit every homily, too. You know, I... I recently was at a church, I won't say where or whatever, but in the homily, the priest, of course, turned to the whole congregation and says, well, of course, we all know that that uh, Noah and the ark is just a myth. We all know that it's not history, of course. We all know that the most stupid thing to do is go f- try and find an ark. And I wanted to stand up and said, uh, excuse me. <laughs> Uh, If Jesus spoke of Noah as a real person, I'm going to too. If the whole idea of the foundation for the belief of the church as an ark in the midst of a flood, if that's only based on a myth, well, then so is the church. Excuse me. So. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: And uh, that's one of the reasons I love Irenaeus. He took the Bible from beginning to end seriously as an infallible Word of God, passed on by the Spirit as the foundation for the apostolic deposit of faith. So praise God, we don't have to we don't have to apologize for Irenaeus in any way, shape, or form. I mean, he got a few things, a few interpretations, but we see it in the context. We can recognize. But anyway, yeah. On 449, uh, as we finish up the preface, and we're moving slowly through it here, he makes a very important point in that, that first uh, full paragraph there on page 449. He says, It will be necessary both for thee and for all who are to read this book very carefully to read what we have said before. So in other words, people, if you're joining us on episode 40, pause, And go back to episode one and start from the beginning. He's saying, read the book from the beginning. Just don't jump at the quotes.
1: You got to do all of Lent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You know, there he says, thou and all who might read this book. So there we see that kind of like the beginning of the of Luke's gospel in the book of Acts when he's talking to Theophilus. He he was writing to a particular person, but he knew that this book would be writ- read. But he's telling it all. Start yeah. from the beginning. And he's why. Why? He gives two reasons in that paragraph. Number one, to cast away their opinions there, the, the Gnostics the false teachers, to cast away their opinions as dung by the faith that comes from heaven and to follow him alone, who is the true and strong teacher, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Irenaeus is committed to the simplicity of the gospel. He is. It's about following Jesus, the Word of God. And so it's his, it's there as a part of his message. To separate yourself from the opinions as, and he uses the kind word dung. <laughs> I wonder what it is in the Greek, Monsignor. <laughs> uh, by the faith that comes from heaven. By the faith that comes from heaven, he says. That this 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 apostolic deposit that we're giving our lives to, its source is not man, it's heaven. Okay. And then he has, he ends that with this great quote. And everybody, you know, we're just summarizing here, so you got to read the book, not just what we're summarizing, but there's a great quote, Monsignor, that I'm going to read and then I'm going to pass it to you to expologize on. But it's just powerful because Irenaeus writes, Who for his immense love's sake was made that which we are in order that he might perfect us to be what he is.
1: And um, it's just, I think it's another way of, um, we talked last in our last session about, um, we use the language of divinization or yeah. theosis um, that, um, well, and, and we're going to find out in the, shortly now about how he develops this, but but this is—it's—it's it's this idea that we we go nowhere without Jesus Christ, um, and the incarnation is is everything. I mean, it is the most important thing of all. Everything, everything in existence centers around the person of Christ, and we can't get to where we can't get to where he he is from unless we attach ourselves to him where he came to to us in our humanity
0: it's it's neat to think that behind irenaeus is polycarp behind polycarp is john what does john say for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son
1: son. that's in here yeah
0: that's in this quote yeah john says in his letter see what Mm -hmm. love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason, excuse me, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. Now it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See him as, again the senses will be this says That we, in order that he might perfect us to be what he is, will be like him. Now, I would say that John Calvin and Martin Luther didn't read this.
1: Yeah, I don't think they would have had any problems with this. Huh? They would have loved this.
0: Well, the reason I say they had a problem with it is because this idea of imputed righteousness. In other words, we're not, they don't see us being perfected to be what he is.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah.
0: You know, this is not Calvinism. This is not Lutheranism. In other words, this is about, he came not just to cover up our our dung heap with his righteousness, he came to perfect us so that we might be what he is. That's why he said we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And he came to change us. Anyone who's in Christ is not just covered. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come, Paul writes.
1: That's right. He didn't he didn't come and then throw us on the bus to heaven. <laughs> we we have to we we have to cooperate every step of the way. He's very, very firm on this point that that God does not compel. Yep. God created us to be free and we have to choose for Christ. We have to choose to attach ourselves to Christ.
0: You, in that sense, you make a, a wonderful point, yeah. Monsignor, is that what Irenaeus what is saying here, he's building on what he just said in Book 4.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Because he just had that big section on on freedom. This is a great quote. Uh, it's just a powerful quote.
1: And You know, Marcus, I just, it reminds me, too, of how... Um, in my, when I do, um, you know, acts of um, self-examination and think about that, one of the things that I realized as I got older was how much I had let the institution of the church dominate my understanding of the faith. And I kind of lost, sometimes I would realize, you know, I'm, I'm more interested I spend more time with the church as institution and what it does, what she does, than I do with her Lord, with Christ. Yeah. And when you come across a writer like Irenaeus that is so deeply Christ-centered, it, it's such a refreshing thing to go back to the foundation.
0: To, to emphasize Christ, doesn't mean taking away from anything else no. in the church. The church is there to preserve and to proclaim and defend and die for Christ. And it, it struck me this morning when I was reading in the Psalms, David writes, I assume, in, um, let's see if I got the right Psalm here. Uh, Psalm 16, David begins, preserve me, O God, for in thee I take refuge. I say to the Lord, thou art my God, I have no good apart from thee. Well, David didn't say, preserve me, O God, for in Israel I take refuge. In uh, Judah <laughs> I take refuge. In Jerusalem, yeah. I, he didn't say that. He said, in God I take refuge. So we Catholics have to be careful that we don't say, preserve me, O God, for in the church I take refuge. David didn't deny that God had chosen Israel as his own by not mentioning him, but he kept the priorities right. It's God he takes refuge in. Catholic Christians and non-Catholic Christians, of course, It's Jesus that we take refuge in. It's Jesus that we take refuge in. That's what Irenaeus is is emphasizing here. Read this sentence with yourself. Who for his immense love's sake was made that which I am, Mm -hmm. in order that he might perfect me to be what he is. And if we are not responding to grace to change, we've denied this. He did this to make us like him. But he doesn't force us, like it said in the last book. He gives us grace. He gives us the deposit of faith. He gives us the fellowship of the church. But it's still up to us to put aside these things, to put off the old man, as Paul says, and put on the new. The word put involves our effort. Now we'll talk a little bit about
1: being yeah. made again, but and and you know, and I think we we we're not saying that we can do it on our own. Um, I love the there's an expression that St. Augustine uses in his work on the Trinity that um, because of the incarnation, we go through Christ to Christ. So we can't, we we are unable to approach the word of God in his divinity. We're simply unable, Irenaeus points this out along the way here, all the reasons why we can't. But because of the incarnation, he came to be as one of us, so through his humanity, he takes us to his divinity. We have to join him in that. We have to do the searching with him, but or we have to we have to attach ourselves to him by deliberate choice. But taking us to his divinity, then we can see God, and participate in the life of the Trinity, have communion with the life of the Trinity. Um, so yeah, it's the incarnational theology here is just so rich.
0: Yeah, I, I, um, I'm, that, that's a great segue into the next section, uh, because of time, I want to make sure we don't short shrift it, but folks, I think we yeah. want to keep on. If you need to take a pause, because Monsignor and I have gotten a bit too long in the tooth, uh, feel, feel the need for that. But we want to get into chapter one then, because here's where he begins talking about well, he hasn't begun, he's been talking about it all along, but he focuses on the importance of the incarnation. And just in words of summary, Monsignor, and then I'll have you jump in on page okay. 449. He talks about Christ's incarnation helped him communicate the Father to us. He talks about the value of that. And remember, last time we talked about, you know, we were children and we needed there's all kinds of reads because we're children. And so, that, that, so he's been building on this idea that the incarnation was necessary. And he says, we had to see and hear him so that we might learn from him, have communion with him, imitate his deeds, do his words, and receive growth from him who is perfect. Now, that's a summary of what Irenaeus says here in some ways. But do you hear Irenaeus talking about our need to grow in perfection? Mm-hmm. He became incarnate so that we could hear and see him, so that we could imitate him, learn from him, have communication. The incarnation was necessary that we might learn from him. The incarnation was necessary so we could have communication, have communion, excuse me, with God so that we could see his deeds and imitate them. We could hear his words and do them. We could receive growth from him. He's perfect so that we might become perfect. And we were preordained by the foreknowledge of God to be this which he is changing us. He's, we, we were made by him to be after his own likeness, made by him who is most excellent and good. Well, so you want to comment about that at all? I mean, it's just that's a summary of what he says in that first part of section one.
1: Yeah. No, I Marcus, I think you can press on here.
0: Okay. Okay. So in on page 450, he gets into the apostasy that rules us. Um That whole section, I will say, that whole section I have under highlighted from the middle of 449 all the way through the top of 450. It's a great quote for, I would encourage you to read. But then he talks about that he ransomed those who were led into captivity, and he gives a 10-step process about this ransom. And Monsignor, this is, to me, it's fascinating because he's summarizing all of Salvation history here. He's saying, by nature, we belong to God. One. Two, apostasy ruled unrighteously over us. Therefore, three, we were alienated contrary to our nature. We were we're blind to how we were alienated to our very nature for we were made disciples of this apostasy so I mean that's a fascinating thing he says not only were we in apostasy but we were we were we were bringing others into it maybe blindly until 5 the word of god who failed not in his righteousness set himself against our apostasy there we have the sinlessness of christ Six, he ransomed us, not by force, but by persuasion. And, Monster, you may need to go into that in a little bit. By persuasion. Yeah. Seven, therefore Christ redeemed us by his blood, his soul, his flesh, and his spirit. Number eight, bringing God unto man by the spirit, and then bringing up man unto God by his incarnation. This is great stuff in here. So that in step step nine, in his coming, in his might and truth, bestowing upon us incorruption. So that ten, therefore, the heretics' doctrine has all come to naught. Pass this to you, Monsignor. I mean, there's so much good stuff in there.
1: There is great stuff in here. I was, I had forgotten that um, Irenaeus lays a foundation for. The ransom theory of the atonement, and a lot of people don't realize what this is. So maybe I could just say please. a word about it, please. Too, because especially if we who have uh, come out of um, various Protestant backgrounds would find this unusual, um, because what what happens on Good Friday, um, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins by making an offering um, to God. Well, there's a whole long history to this uh, story, and I just, in a very few words, I want to just speak about this. Um, we, The early fathers um, basically had two ideas about how, how we're saved, or you know, the means of, of salvation, um, atonement, if we will, one is we've talked about already, is this idea of theosis or divinization that, because of Christ's presence coming to be with us, uh, we can become like Him, and, and and therefore are brought home. Also, though, but you got to deal with a couple of other factors. Um, you know, um, Christ's battle against Satan, His yeah. His work on the cross, and Irenaeus starts to lay this out, um, which is typically, it's commonly called the ransom theory of the atonement. And he really has all the elements to it here. Um, uh, Satan basically stole us from God. um, And, you know, now he claims that he has he has we're his rightfully, Satan would claim. And God as Irenaeus says God does not compel here God sends his son and uh through well I think he uses the word somewhere here persuasion um, he he um he frees us from satan and uh the later the later fathers really go on about this uh at some at some um, length um uh, Saint Augustine has a mouse trap image that the cross um, is like a mouse trap. Its bait, the bait of the Son of God, has been set on that mouse trap, and the enemy rises up to catch it. <laughs> or Gregory of Nyssa, the cross is a fish hook, and the bait is sinless humanity, which Christ is. And he rises up to grab that delectable fish and its divine substance. Well, and and it it's interesting
0: up. that Irenaeus says that yeah. for he says the word of God who failed not in his righteousness set himself against our apostasy.
1: That's what you're talking yeah. about. It's amazing, you know. So I, you know, I, do you remember that work, um, uh, 1962? Um, Christus Victor. Does that name, ring a bell? Uh, kind By of, but... Gust- Gustav Allain. Oh, yeah, a yeah, Swedish, yeah, 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 yeah. He was a sw- Swedish pastor from Lund, and he wrote this work called Christus Victor, and it's about um, this ransom theory of the atonement that kind of got lost in Reformation theology. Well, actually, it got lost earlier than that. It was St. Anselm that developed the or he laid out the substitutionary theory of the atonement where, um, where Christ's offering was to placate the anger of the righteous father who had been betrayed by his creation. Um, we, the, the fathers of the church are more, they don't talk like that. They yeah. talk more about how um, Christ came to free us from the Dominion of Satan there um there there is and, a yeah, I'm sorry,
0: yeah. well, well, there is a more contemporary writer that our audience might be very familiar with who was very much in the ransom theory, an Anglican by the name of c.s Lewis,
1: I was gonna say it, yes,
0: <laughs> that's what Aslan does, yeah. That's that's the ah. whole point of Aslan being uh, uh, being killed on the the stone, th- uh, uh, Dia's or whatever it's called. But he also not only in the tales of Narnia is the whole thing about the ransom theory in the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But what's the name of the main character in the sci-fi novels? The main character in Prolandra... And that hideous strength?
1: What's his I name? Think his name was Ransom. Exactly. Wasn't it? Ransom. It's named
0: <laughs> Ransom. C.S. Lewis Touché. is all over this.
1: <laughs> Touche. Isn't that fascinating?
0: It's well, fascinating. You know, we didn't research this, folks, but that makes me want to take a was C. S. Lewis unapologetically reintroducing the ransom theory or emphasizing it in the midst. Now, I was never an Anglican, so I don't know whether this theory is floating around in the last hundred years during in, in modern Anglicanism. I can't even honestly, it, it's not a, maybe it's because I was so influenced by C.S. Lewis writings that the whole ransom theory is not a surprise to me at all. So I can't I can't picture how prevalent it is amongst evangelicals, which is my background. Maybe it's much more accepted as one of the options or one of the ways to look at it. But frankly, I can't, I'm sure we didn't get it from reading the early church fathers. If we got it from anyone, it was C.S. Lewis.
1: Oh, and that would be so interesting. I don't know enough about it to know where Lewis developed these ideas from. Um, but Certainly, you know, as an Anglican, we, you know, using the Book of Common Prayer, um, the, the substitutionary theory of the atonement was the predominant way that we thought about um, the atonement. Yeah, St. Uh, Anselm oh. was a very fine Archbishop of Canterbury, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but as you said,
0: this is, I mean, we didn't come up to it. He uses the word himself against the aforesaid apostasy, ransoming from it the things which are his own. Ransoming from it, the apostasy, yeah.
1: the devil. And he I, and I just, it's so moving because, you know, like the old hymn says, he could have called 10,000 angels and he could have just completely destroyed the powers of evil. But... He carried through this whole work of laying down his life. Um, and Irenaeus you know, touches on this here he, when he alludes to how it is that um, he came to persuade, basically, the lang- that language.
0: I, to me, the, the struggle, I, I haven't thought about it in a while, but with the ransom theory is this this idea, it almost implies that God had to submit to the devil um, you know that that's a struggle with that,
1: yeah, uh, you know th- yeah, and that's what, yeah, because the, the Saint Anselm's argument was the devil has no rights whatsoever, um so the that theory should be thrown out on the surface of it because of that but but here
0: yeah you know, the the last paragraph of of uh, section one, thus, the Lord having redeemed us with his own blood and giving his soul for our souls, and his own flesh for our flesh, and pouring out the Spirit of the Father for the union and communion of God and man, both bringing down God unto man by the Spirit, and again bringing in, or the other translation could be up, man unto God by his incarnation, and in might and in truth by his coming, bestowing upon us incorruption by our communion with him, and then he says, "And all the doctrines of the heretics are come to naught." I mean, that's just a wonderful summary there. Yeah, and it, you know, we can get caught up in arguing over interpretations of doctrine, but what it really—the bottom line is—is is the the whole ransom theory should humble us to our knees, because Christ took our place, took our stead, and that's what comes out when C. S. Lewis does The Lion, the Witch and the Road Robe is that Aslan, if I remember right, takes the stead of Edmund, who had gotten who had gotten lured by the the witch. Yeah. And she had a claim over him. And so Aslan surrenders himself. And then is victorious, you know. That's the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Yeah. All right. So Monsignor, uh, uh, there's so much more we can talk about there. But again, as a summary, I, in my notes, I pretty much wrote off uh, section two and the very introductory to section three, where he's talking about the Valentinians and the Ebionites only because a lot of this, in my view, was a summary of what he'd done before in the previous books. And kind of like I was using the analogy of the of the etiquette on a canal boat, you know, that a lot of what he's talking about doesn't, in my mind, directly apply to us today. So uh, I would pause at that point. Unless, Monson, you want to add, throw something in there from that little section.
1: Yeah, maybe just two very brief points. Um, on page 451, I just think it's worth, whenever I we meet up with the person of the Blessed Virgin Mary, I think it's good to just look at that too, that first sentence there in the first full paragraph, as we have shown that it is the same thing to say that he appeared, but in fancy, and that he took nothing of Mary. Um, so yeah, that the the Gnostics that he's dealing with here, these Dostists, basically, um, Mary had nothing to do with it. So, and so Mary, if she had nothing to do with it, she has no place in the whole story of salvation. And She's it, just a side actor.
0: Well, and you as you said, this yeah. heresy rises today because there are an awful lot of well-meaning Christians today who are so put off and, and afraid of being too Catholic that they pretty much treat Mary as if she was nothing more than a, a womb.
1: Um, yeah that's right that that you know he just the that Christ just kind of shot through but um didn't, it didn't stop to collect anything of humanity along the way. Yeah. And then in in section 3 is just the opposite problem these these Ebionites um they don't they don't see the divinity in Christ. Um they they see him as uh, just a human being and and if you look at just a few lines down there, um, these therefore reject the infusion of the heavenly wine, and will have it to be earthly water alone, not receiving God into that which they mingle, but abiding in Him who was overcome and cast out of paradise, even in Adam. Um, I, there's a Eucharistic reference there that I, I see too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the whole question of is the Eucharist. You, how can you have, how can you have a Eucharist that's truly sacramental if Christ was a mere man? Because then the the body, the bread and the wine, they simply are nothing more than just the stuff of this of this existence, this world. So I just those were two points that kind of jumped out at me about. Um,
0: well, it about. emphasizes why the church always says when we talk about the real presence of Eucharist, we we say body, blood, soul, and divinity. Yeah. And earlier he had said um, that, he, that we were redeemed—this is back in, in the end of section one—with his own blood and given his soul for our souls and his own flesh for our flesh and pouring out the spirit of the Father for the union— So we have there not just his blood and flesh, but his soul, a person, a whole person. There were two quotes in section three that I thought I'd point out, Monsignor, that emphasize the incarnation. And and again, so in other words, setting aside Valentinus and the Ebionites and, and these issues, but yet there are two quotes, and one is there beginning on line four in section three, Um, and will not understand that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and the power of the highest overshadowed her. Wherefore, also that which is born is holy, even the Son of the Most High God, the Father of all, who wrought his incarnation, and exhibiting a new sort of generation, that as by the former generation we inherited death, so by this generation we might inherit life. So there's a great "Quote on uh, uh, on the meaning of the incarnation and what it accomplishes,
1: right? And and yeah, just it kind of reminds us of, of that we talked about it in many of the earlier podcasts about Irenaeus's doctrine of recapitulation. Um, Christ, Christ has oh. has completely renewed, recapitulated um, the original creation. In Christ, all things are new. Okay."
0: And then, if we jump down a little bit beyond the quote you had, down about six sentences, he says, They do not consider that, as from the beginning of our formation in Adam, the inspiration of life which was of God, being united to that which he had molded, animated man, and exhibited him a rational animal. So, in the end, the word of the Father and the Spirit of God being united to the old substance of Adam's formation, wrought out a living and perfect man, comprehending the perfect Father, so that as in the animal we are all dead, so in the spiritual we are all made alive. Aaron is trying to, to get across the power of the incarnation and how it changed you know, think about all the heresies that are going to come in the next 150 years as they battle with Christ and how the, the his manhood and his divinity fit together. He's, he's trying here, before the controversies, to explain yeah. how Christ was changed so that we might be changed.
1: Marcus, what lies ahead of us now when we come back to these texts that follow is Irenaeus gives us a fascinating account of what human nature is all about um, so we'll be talking about spirit the soul and the body and how all three you know yeah. in the in a in the perfect man the one that is redeemed they all function together um, all three created by God yeah. all three
0: make up who we are and all yeah. three
1: are redeemed
0: uh, all right. Monsignor, could you close us with prayers?
1: Of course, I'd be happy to. Um, just I think I'll use this prayer for um, the office today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm. Bestow on us, we pray, O oh Lord, a spirit of always pondering on what is right and of hastening to carry it out. And since without you we cannot exist, May we be enabled to live according to your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you and all of you for
0: joining us on this episode. We look forward to uh, jumping in next week. Book 5, Chapter 2. We'll see you then.